Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR-161BA-97, Problems Faced on the Mission Field, From the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 207, November 21, 1989. This evening... There are four of us, John Lofton, Otto Scott, myself, and Tim Vaughn. And we're going to talk with Tim Vaughn about his missionary experiences in Papua. A very interesting uh, insight into the problems that are faced on the mission field. Let me say by way of parenthesis, a few years ago when I was in Australia, someone from Britain handed me something uh, the size of uh, a smaller telephone directory, but of several hundred pages. Uh, this gentleman, Sir Something, was thoroughly disgusted. He said, this is what was framed in London as the Constitution for Papua. And he said, uh, we still have headhunters back in the hills. And most of the people have no capacity to understand this. But they are going to impose a Constitution that uh, most people would find intolerable reading after the first 50 pages. On a people as backward as this, and they feel that they have achieved a landmark in uh, civilization to have so enlightened a document. Well, uh, remember that Constitution, because although we won't be discussing it later, uh, Tim will tell you something about Papua and the people there, and then you'll realize what's wrong with... Uh, our various uh, Western nations, the UN, our professors, as they approach countries like this with no awareness of the conditions, writing constitutions for people they have never seen. Well, with that, Tim, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and going over there? And Yeah. Uh, First of all, I think 50, nobody in the entire country could make it through 50 pages even of a constitution. They probably have a hard time getting through the first sentence because none of them can read. But uh, the reason that I wanted to go to Papua New Guinea was because I've been interested in Bible translation for years. And there are still something like four or 5,000 languages that still need the Bible translated into them. And uh, of that four or 5,000, a significant number are in Papua New Guinea. For so many centuries, uh, the people have been so scared to go out of sight of their own village that whole languages have developed in every isolated little valley. And I'm not talking about a dialect. I'm talking about a language as different as French is from German within a five-minute walk of anywhere in the, in the country, practically. In fact, I, I would venture to say that if you were to be dropped in the middle of the entire country, anywhere in the entire country, you wouldn't have to walk more than an hour, an hour and a half at the most to get into a completely different language group. And another thing about Papua New Guinea is that it was one of the 
most recent of all the nations that have been opened up to Western civilization. It took so long to put down the tribal wars and uh, cannibalism that the Australian government, which controlled half of the nation, and the German government, which controlled the other half of the nation, had to give special permission to anybody that could, anybody that they allowed to go uh, travel through it and do missionary work. And it wasn't until like the 1950s that some of the highland areas were even opened up to missionaries. And one of the things that uh, one of the things that bothered me about Bible translation was that I was a Calvinist at the time, and you hardly ever hear about Calvinist Calvinistic missionary work. And I was some, somewhat distraught because I wanted to look into the matter very much, and I didn't know how in the world I was going to get a chance to go somewhere and be apprenticed under a man that was actually doing it rather than going to a seminary for four years. I thought the best thing to do would be just to apprentice myself, which I see as more biblical, uh, to an older man that was in the field. And providentially, a man came to speak at our church, and he'd been uh, a successful Bible translator in Papua New Guinea, and I asked if I could go out and live with him for a while to see how I would fit in. And he said he was more than happy to take me as long as the church would recommend me. And my church did, and sent me out for uh, for several months to go live with them. But... Uh, I think that's enough is by way of introduction. And why uh, would the people not go very far from their village? Oh, yes. Well, they, they were scared of being assassinated. Uh, every tribe, not only every tribe, but every village had its own sorcerer, which in the pidgin language was translated as the poison man because their chief instruments of, of dealing death was through narcotics through drugs of varying potencies and uh, in fact one thing that surprised me as a as a student of languages is that all the languages in Papua New Guinea have duels instead of having like in English uh, he walks or they walk they have he walks they walk and those two people walk because it was impossible for anybody to walk by themselves for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years because poison men would sit out and assassinate him. And the reason for the assassinations was uh, was vengeance. And it didn't have to be so much, your, your brother killed this man, so this man's relatives are going to kill your brother. Anybody in your tribe was fair game. And so if I killed somebody from a neighboring tribe, somebody from that neighboring tribe wouldn't even necessarily try to kill me. They would just attack somebody from my tribe or my immediate family. So it was impossible to... Uh, go any amount of distances at all from your from your own little village. Well, as as one uh, who went to the uh, only to the public schools, I'm afraid, <laughs> may I ask you, where is Papua New Guinea? Yeah, it's it's. I think it's the second largest island in the world. Uh, it's just north of Australia, just okay. north of Australia. When you say you went to stay with this older man, was it in New Guinea? Uh, in Papua New Guinea, yeah, they, they combined the two names. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was in Papua New Guinea, in a, in a tribe called the Kaagana, uh, which is a sub a sub tribe of the language group uh, of, of the Garoka, and it breaks down from there on to bigger and bigger, bigger sections. The, the uh, Garoka was the nearest. They actually named a town after Garoka. It was in the uh, in the province of Garoka is in, is in the Eastern Highlands province. Was this language was unwritten? 
Exactly, exactly, yes. All of the languages were unwritten because uh, none of them had any idea at all. None of the, uh, what are there, 700 languages and 3,000 dialects, and none of them had a written language. And so missionaries would go in there, first learn the language, and then before actually translating a Bible, they would write down some of the old uh, folk tales for two reasons. One was to familiarize themselves with the language, and number two was to get people interested in reading, mm-hmm. because that was that's a major obstacle. <laughs> Do you know that a UN commission about 10, 15 years ago rebuked Australia that they had not established a university for the natives? Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't hardly surprise me. They have some universities now, and the only place that communism is prevalent in that whole country is in the universities. In fact, there's some fear there that. Uh, the Indonesians will end up taking over Papua New Guinea because they already own half of the island that it's situated on. And the excuse that the Indonesians may very well use is communism because we all know the story of Sukarno and how he, and the legacy that he left towards communists. <laughs> well, the missionary, <coughs> pardon me, the missionary that you studied with, he knew the language. Yes, it took him about 20 years to learn the language. 20 years? Yeah, yeah the Melanesian languages are not obviously not Indo-European, and they're much more difficult for people of European background to understand than, say, uh, French or even a Slavic language. Could you say something in that language? Uh, sure. <coughs> this is something I taught my three-year-old son Aaron the other day. Ata fukakao which means a uh, blow on the fire to get it going hot. And the, the reason I learned that phrase, that was the first phrase I learned because everybody lived in a little grass hut that was circular in shape, and the only form of heating and cooking was a pile of wood in the middle of it that was burning all the time, so you could put the sweet potatoes in the ashes and it would keep you warm and so forth. And I, I wasn't a very good, uh, I never did belong to the Boy Scouts or anything, and I had a hard time starting these fires all the time. <laughs> And the word for a young man was Mufatbe. And so whenever I wanted a fire started, I'd look out the door until I found a young kid, and I'd say, Mufatbe, atafu kakao. And immediately they'd come running over and start the fire for me. <laughs> was it cold enough there that you had to have a fire? Yeah, in, in the highlands it's not. It's, uh, I guess you'd have to call it subtropical rather than, or semi-tropical rather than tropical. In the mm-hmm. highlands... Every once in a while, they actually get a frost that's cold enough to kill some of the sweet potato vines. Mm-hmm. But in the daytime, it's so hot that Europeans of uh, fair complexion, of which I am one, had to carry an umbrella around in the daytime to keep from getting blisters on their skin. Well, then you lived in one of these huts. Uh, while I was out, while I was out uh, doing my thing, I was living in the huts. But the missionaries had uh, achieved an incredible feat of workmanship in the middle of the jungle. For the benefit of their wives, they actually were able to get two by fours from somewhere or another and put up a a little cabin, and they collected water from the roof, and they so everybody would have running we all had running water, and plus they had a way of putting copper tubing through the stove to where we even had hot running showers. So it was really kind of nice. And one of the men actually had a propane burning refrigerator. So whenever they went into town once every two months or three months they were able to get some meat and keep it for however long it lasted. And that was our only source of meat because the people only had diseased pigs in way of meat. <laughs> Yummy. 
Yeah. Yeah, we had to... Well, sounds like you had a pretty soft, Tim. Yeah. Yeah, one of the things I hated... TV? Do you have any color TV there? <laughs> yeah, come, on, come on, come on. Was there a color TV? No, a small one TV. just for you? Not In your hut? <laughs> How were they physically? Well, since the missionaries came, they were splendid physical specimens, except for the fact that they all were full of parasites from sleeping with pigs at night. In, in the hut, <laughs> in the hut the, nobody's, whenever a, a man and a woman wanted to procreate, they went out and did it in a garden for, for fertility reasons. So when everybody slept at night, the whole clan would pile into this one house, and then there, if, oftentimes they'd have a flea-bitten chihuahua type of dog, and then they had their pigs, and they loved their pigs so much that they couldn't bear to keep them out of the cold at night <laughs> in some of the cases. So you could be laying in a smoke-filled hut and somebody would be licking you, and you didn't know whether it was a kid or a dog or a pig, and all the time you were picking out fleas and cockroaches that were crawling away. Yeah, it, sounds, <laughs> it sounds like uh, your, uh, Ameri- your average American college fraternity on the yeah, yeah. It sounds like Rousseau would have enjoyed that. Yeah. I think well, so. in the Rousseau. old days, <laughs> the Papuans were famous for so prizing their pigs that they would often suckle the uh, yes. young pig I rather than the uh, right. child. Yeah, I've seen them. I saw them do that one time. Oh. They still do it. Oh, yeah. That's pretty sick. I don't think they do it rather than their child, but and they do it in addition to their child usually. One of the things that uh, was really unfortunate is whenever they had twins up until the time the Christians came, they would kill one of them because they didn't feel there'd be enough milk uh, for both. And there was one case of a Christian lady having twins, and she raised them. And all the uh, all the other women said that she was going to come to some horrid end or something like that. And she raised both of the children successfully, and it became quite a testimony to the uh, the gospel. How long were you there? Uh, six months, and actually up in the tribes. What, what sort of success has the gospel had there? Incredible, incredible, incredible success. Yeah, they. Uh, they, there is still cannibalism, but it's so rare that nobody would ever see it if they were just a casual visitor. Uh, the literacy in the one tribe I was at, the Kagana has about 10,000 people, and there's probably 3,000 of them that can read now, uh, and there's probably 350 Christians, maybe 30 different churches. Mm. 3,000 that can read? 3,000, yeah. Well, read. then there's nothing wrong with their basic intelligence. Oh, no, no. I think that... Uh, just about any race, given the proper environment, would achieve more or less the same. One problem that they did have, and it wasn't genetic, but it was environmental, was that when a woman was pregnant, the Lutheran nurses would go around from tribe to tribe and say, when you're pregnant, you must eat yellow vegetables like a pumpkin or a squash that way you get enough vitamin A, and so on and so forth. But as soon as the, the Lutheran ladies left, then the native women would come out and tell all the young women that, no, if you eat a pumpkin, then your head's, your kid's head's going to turn out like a pumpkin. <laughs> and so they, there was a lot of malnutrition there. They had that quashkioker, I think that's how you pronounce that, protein deficiency, uh, where you can see it in the kid's pot belly, uh, kind of an orange skin. Uh, so you can't expect a person that is, they had that kind of nutrition in the womb, so to speak, uh, to develop the same as a, Europe, a European child would. But after, say, three generations, I think that, they would have no problem fitting into our our society. Is is there a hostility there toward Christians and missionaries? I mean, do people uh, did they ever get killed there, and do they still get killed? Yeah, some Christians. Of, I mean, yeah. Peyton has a famous book. Oh about yes, that. sure. That was one of the islands offshore there. 
uh, the Gilberts, I believe, wasn't it? I don't know. One, one of those, one of those offshore. Well, that was uh, about 200 years ago. Exactly, though. exactly. That was when they first came. But now, uh, the Christians are, are very, very much appreciated, very much appreciated for what they've done. Uh, once in a while, a native Christian will get uh, heckled by some of his, mm-hmm. uh, somebody from another tribe or something like that. But it's it's really not that bad. They uh, they really respect what the Christians have done, and since probably ninety nine point nine percent of all the legislatures that legislators that the country has ever had were taught to read by missionaries, and there is some sort of residual goodwill, I think, if nothing else, because of things like that. <laughs> and and what uh, what language did they learn to read? Their own language. That surprised me because I was expected to teach people to read a week after I got there. <laughs> But the missionaries uh, teach, first they learn the language, then they write the language down in a kind of a phonetic uh, phonetic spelling. And so I could go and teach people. We used primers, like I think there were six of them in our language, six primers in a row. Uh, when somebody was starting to learn to read, you give them primer number one, and the word for frog happened to be utu. And you'd show them a U, and then a T, and a U, and then they'd be able to say ooh too because you know you had taught them that uh, however many there were 24 25 uh, letters in their alphabet and then it got progressively harder and harder to where you had them reading out full sentences and then one time I was in a hut and a little girl got up and started reading from the book of Luke they had a shared copy of the book of Luke and she probably was about six or seven years old and she read it every bit as well as a European girl her age would have been it was uh, kind of a touching moment for us because we saw the fruits of all that effort. <laughs> you were very quick with languages. Uh, did you have trouble with their language, or did you pick it up uh, quickly? Well, fortunately, all the young men know uh, the, what they call the pidgin language, but it's not a pidgin anymore. It's become so complex that linguistically it's actually a creole. And I learned the pidgin language, uh, they, the Neo, Neo-Melanesian is his proper name, in about two and a half two and a half months. In two and a half months I was able to teach and uh, I didn't even attempt to learn more than a few phrases and a few grammatical rules about the tribal language because I knew that if it took a, a brilliant missionary 20 years to do it then I might as well just concentrate on learning the theory, theories of language learning rather than learning the language itself. In this educational effort, where was the government? Was there a government? The missionaries do it all. The missionaries, the missionaries do it all. In fact, uh, in the public schools that they do have in Papua New Guinea. They still have the RI, the religious instruction. They had that in Australia. I'm sure you mm-hmm. saw one here there. But we were allowed to go to a, the Christian, not the Christian, we were allowed to go to the public school anytime we wanted and take an hour out of the day and preach preach the gospel, teach them to read, teach them songs, anything we wanted to. And the government, the government actually welcomed it. It's kind of nice. What government was involved? They're independent now. They're independent. they're independent, so it's yes. their own government. Uh, more or less, they're more subsidized. Less. Very, very heavily. I would hate to give a figure, but it's By whom? Australia, because Australia has something like 17 million people now, and they've, from the very beginnings as a nation, they've always been paranoid about their small numbers and that huge landmass. And I was surprised to learn that most of them, at least the expat Australians living in Papua New Guinea, 
are deathly afraid of an Indonesian invasion. <laughs> so they pump huge amounts of money into Papua New Guinea every year to create a buffer zone, buffer zone between them and uh, Indonesia. Well, do they have <laughs> native officials? Oh, yeah. Native officials, uh, even white officials at times. A white man, is it's perfectly legal for him to run for office, and very often he, he gets elected. In fact, one time there was a man that uh, got elected. He became a citizen of Papua New white person, I think he was from Australia, became a citizen of Papua New Guinea. And uh, Papua New Guinea is a free country, which according to the natives means you can have as many wives as you want. <laughs> <laughs> and it surprised me to learn this Australian had actually had two wives and nobody seemed to be shocked for it. He admitted it openly. It was kind of strange. <laughs> well, what was the form of government? Parliamentary. Parliamentary. Yeah. And they have a governor? Uh, Prime Minister. Prime Minister. Prime Minister, yeah. And uh, all the tribes represented? Uh, they do it by sections. They do it by every district gets to have a person elected. So uh, obviously, if there's you know three thousand tribes and seven thousand dialects, and there's sub sub tribes and subgroups and sub dialects among those, not all of them can be elected. But I think it's a, across the board probably probably pretty fair as far as representation. How many people altogether? Three million. Three million. Three million. Yeah. Which is not that much. It's very underpopulated. Well, that's more than there is in Ireland. <laughs> is it? I think so. Oh. And uh, Ireland, Scotland is not much more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, see, Wales has, doesn't Wales have like three million and Scotland has seven million? Something, something like something that, like that. Yeah. yes. Yeah, it's very underpopulated. These are large numbers. Yeah, but still, the, the area is so huge, you can be flying in a plane over the island and only every five minutes see a little cleared area for for a village or something. And that's another reason that there's a lot of pressure from the Indonesians is because they're very crowded and uh, they really covet the island. Has it got any mineral? Uh, well, it's had a lot of gold. A lot of gold. A lot of gold. Yeah. It's just been... Uh, How about oil? I don't think it has any oil. Mm-hmm. No. But the agricultural potential is astounding. Again, agricultural potential is astounding. They have some of the most... Beautiful hardwoods that you could ever imagine. Just Are the Japanese involved? They scout the Pacific very yeah. thoroughly, don't they? I didn't meet any. It seemed to be mostly uh, Australians and New Zealanders that were uh, developing the nation. As much as they can, there's restrictions because an expat can't have a can't own a business in certain areas uh, because obviously people have never had any understanding of a work ethic and. They would be driven out of business by any Japanese or Filipino or white person that came along. And so they had to change the law and uh, restrict a lot of the businesses. What do what the, the people there do for fun? <laughs> do they have games poker. or sports? Poker. Poker? Yeah. yeah. They, uh, the women do all the work. The women... Poker. Uh, yeah. Well, that poker. sounds like According to Hoyle. Pardon me? According to Hoyle or seven-card seven stud? Okay. Uh, I wouldn't know because all the missionaries kept walking around saying, you shouldn't be doing that. You only earn $7 a month and you should give something to your family. So I, <laughs> I never sat down with them while they were playing. <laughs> yeah, the women, uh, the women look after all the kids, look after the pigs, grow all the food, and all the men have to do is build a fence around the garden. This varies slightly from tribe to tribe, but basically the men just have to build a fence around the garden and build a hut, which doesn't take very long. And then during the rest of the year, they they call it they call it rounding. That means they walk around aimlessly. It's called rounding. And then they play poker. 
<laughs> a lot of that going on in our country yeah. now. Well, they had an excuse. The, the, the official excuse was that they were the warriors that were needed to defend the tribe all the time, so they had to have their time freed up by the women. But now that the intertribal warfare is gone, there's not much of an excuse left. But oh, the Europeans get blamed for it. Uh, whenever they can get the money, they can. They, alcohol costs a lot of money, and if you only make $7, $8, and $9. What about the drugs that the... Uh, oh, yeah. Which doctor used? Right. Well, that's, those are uh, those are not uh, used. Uh, they're not used otherwise. Well, uh, yeah, they're not used. Uh, what, what's the word for it? Uh, Recreationally. Recreationally, yeah. <laughs> the uh, betel nut is, though. They have the betel nut. You've heard of that. Betel nut. Right, the one that... That nut that turns everybody's lips bright red. Looks like the men have lipstick all smeared all over their face and their teeth. Teeth <laughs> black. No, the teeth are the teeth are red if there are any teeth. Before chewing betel nut, they had beautiful teeth because there aren't any refined sugars there. And uh, they mixed lime in with the betel nut to make it more potent. And the crunching on the combination of lime and betel nuts files down all their teeth. <laughs> One time I was really sad because I saw a little three-year-old kid propped up against a hut in a really poor area, just chewing on betel nut, and he knew how to put the lime on, on his hand, sort of like people drink tequila, right, with a little bit of salt, and then you go through a little ritual every time you take some of it. And it really made me sad because he was obviously dying of malnutrition, even though there was food all around him, but he didn't want to do anything, so chew the betel nut. They farm also, don't they? Subsistence farming, yeah. Sweet potatoes. Sweet potatoes. Sweet potatoes. Little That's sugar it. cane. Little sugar cane, little, uh, little bit of uh, what they call the kumu, which is uh, bitter herbs like spinach. Uh, one thing called pit pit that I became attached to. It's like bamboo shoes, so it's really tasty. <laughs> uh, a few little things like that. We tried to get them to grow more uh, legumes that would give more protein like beans, but... How did they relate to the <coughs> to the gospel? They loved it when they first heard it. There's a verse that says the poor will hear it gladly. And boy, I've never seen anybody accept it quite so gladly as uh, the people of the, the natives there. What was their uh, What was their native religion like? Animism. <coughs> Animism. All the different <coughs> Everything forms. is sacred. No, it wasn't sacred. Everything, Everything had a spirit, but it didn't. Everything had a spirit. spirit. Yeah. In fact. In fact, they didn't mind torturing, torturing things like animals. Most tribal people do that sort of thing. So I don't think it's sacred as much as everything was alive, a tree, a rock, a well, mountain. Why did they torture an animal? For what? Well, why? It's the same reason that some of our friends south of the border do. It's just... For pleasure. I think you'll find that Protestant countries are... Uh, this may be kind of an, a, a bold statement, but I think you'll find that countries with Protestant backgrounds are about the only ones that don't habitually torture animals. I've noticed that myself. There may be exceptions, but mm-hmm. places I've been around the world, uh, I've never seen uh, that the verse that talks about the wise man regarding the life of his beast practiced by anybody outside of... Uh, but I mean, they don't do it for any religious reason. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, okay. no, they're just having fun. Did they have rites of any sort? Uh, yeah. Ceremonies? Uh, they wouldn't let us see most of them, of course. Uh, that's one thing that we always laughed about the anthropologists because they go live somewhere for six months and say they came back fluent in the language and they probably didn't know more than half a dozen phrases and mm-hmm. they knew all their secrets and so forth that mm-hmm. they didn't they didn't learn anything they all. keep their secrets they keep their secrets Some, sometimes like I was fortunate because the man I lived with had been there 23 years and uh, he was regarded as the father of the whole tribe uh, even the non-converted people would say I don't agree with your talk 
That's how they said, I don't agree with your talk, but your talk fell down from heaven, and it is the word of God, and you have brought light into our valley. That's the way they would, the unconverted people would address them. So, yeah, in a case like that, sure, I would, the unconverted. The unconverted would say, yeah. Well, Otto and I are looking at each other. We'd like to go to a place where people yeah. speak to us that way. Well, there is a verse about the four of your godly, and uh, there are certainly four. Yeah. <laughs> How long do they live? Not very long. Were there any elderly people? Yeah, but you couldn't tell how old they were. They could you be couldn't. old and wrinkled and be 40 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, the women all had short <laughs> You know, they had, the women had to carry everything. Uh, I remember the first trip I took, there was two or three young women. They were probably about, all, I don't know, 16 or 17. And they took the pack off my back. I had a my Bible in my sleeping bag, I think is all I have. But they took it on my back to carry it several miles. And I said, no way. And then the man said, no, they're just showing you uh, kindness and, and uh, hospitality. So we never had to carry anything. A little kid or woman would always do it. And I hated to see it, but you know, we were always careful not you know, only to give her a little bag or something, but the husbands to show off would oftentimes just load their wives down. And they all had a hernia. They all looked like they, look like they were pregnant all the time. And they all had real light skin because they were so anemic. They didn't get very much iron. And, you know, every time she had her cycle, boy, it was a zappo and... Uh, medically, there's a lot of interesting things that you can see there. <laughs> they didn't have any fat in their diet, and so what uh, woman didn't read? Oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Yes. Well, uh, I want to go into this matter of the uh, anthropologists and their work there and uh, how the natives regard them, because I think it is very important. Well, Tim, before we get on to the uh, anthropologists, tell us a little more about their attitude towards Christianity and towards the old days when they were still pagans. Yes, that's one of the things that shocked me more than anything else, is they had such a respect for Christianity. Perhaps it was because they saw such a difference between their old ways and the new ways that they regarded Christianity in such a... Uh, a beneficial life, but oftentimes, very often, regularly, you would hear things like, well, myself, I don't follow this word, this talk. I don't follow the gospel, is what they were saying. But it's the truth. It's it's the word of God that fell down from the heavens to come and abide among men, and it's the truth. And as far as the old days, they called it, uh, as, as I've said, uh, the time no good. The, the, the time no good, the time before the, the gospel. and The old people can still remember the fear. The fear was the, was the determining factor in their lives. Everything revolved around fear. And the freedom of fear, the, the freedom of fear that, is, that has uh, been expressed in the lives of the Christian is so profound that people all around can look and see that they don't have that fear anymore and they, they want to be that way. Or even if they don't want to be that way, they respect it and see it as something beneficial. Well, now, the anthropologists, of course, don't like that. No, no, they don't. They don't? No, they hate it. In fact, what is their objection? Christianity. They, they, there's a pathological hatred of Christianity among anthropologists. I, they wouldn't even give me the time of day when I was over there. And Were they there? Once in a while, you'd run into them. Whenever you would go into a little town or a little settlement, mm-hmm. there was always a female anthropologist that 
went around without hardly any clothes on and breastfeeding in public and <laughs> trying really? to prove that she was a, a free and natural lady. <laughs> no, they didn't like they didn't like the missionaries at all. In fact, on uh, very very often they would tell the natives that they should go back to their old old, old ways. Time no good. The time yes. no good. Yeah. They think the Christians are time. No they, good. Yeah, they think Christians are time no good. Yeah. You see that everywhere in the world. It's, just, it's not just in Papua New Guinea. Uh, but fortunately, since New Guinea was one of the last great areas opened up to, to Christianity, the old people still remember the old days. And if you were to go down to the Kosa tribe in South Africa, well, boy, they, they, their people have been dead for ten generations that knew about the old times. So they don't, they don't have the same respect that uh, mm-hmm. people in New Guinea do. You think the converted uh, people there would argue with the anthropologists? I mean, they converted them sometimes. <laughs> in fact, they conver- in fact, I know of two cases where some of the, the natives from my tribe uh, converted to Pentecostal missionaries. I'm I'm not saying that you know, Pentecostals are not converted uh, any more than I'm saying that Baptists or Lutherans are converted. That you find converted people and not converted people of any large group, and there happened to be one Pentecostal uh, in a tribe next to us that wasn't converted. And, uh, then our people went over and converted him to the gospel of Jesus Christ. <laughs> tell, tell, tell us something about the sorcerers. Uh, have they diminished, or do they uh, look upon you all as definitely the enemy? Do they try to kill you? They always gave me a big grin. <laughs> I by. It's hard to say what they're really thinking. I, I remember passing one woman, and this is another sad story. Uh, uh, the word witch is sanguna. And I'm not sure if that's in the trade language or in the native language of where I was staying, but I remember walking by a lady painted in blue psychedelic markings all over her face, and I was walking with a man who just froze up when we passed her. He was literally trembling, and I said, what's wrong? He said, well, she was Sanguna, and I was afraid that she was going to breathe on me. And at every birth, there's a wish doctor in attendance, at least in the tribes I was at, and... Uh, Somebody comes out and he's witch, warlock, or not witch, not warlock. Or this arbitrarily decision, arbitrarily to us, they probably threw some bones and it decided that they were witch. And oftentimes, with a female, they just kill a child. Okay. Just kill a child, yeah. Why? Well, she's a witch. I mean, oh, she's really? Witch, yeah. And if she didn't they kill They condemned the child, in other words. Well, oh, yeah. And if she wasn't a witch, then, the, I mean, if they did leave her alive, then she would be raised to a certain level and then thrown out to become a wild woman and uh, it's a very sad situation in fact uh, the year before I went to our tribe they took a woman and dug a very shallow pit and pushed her into that pit with boulders they fit the entire body into a little teeny pit because she was a witch and some woman was having a baby and the baby died and even though the woman wasn't there since she was the closest witch it was her fault I don't, I don't know. Why would there be the hostility to witches? I mean, a sorcerer is a witch, isn't he? I well, mean, why would maybe... Uh, sorcerer is probably more dangerous. He could do the, something to you. Uh, among That's the American Indians and many, many tribes, there was a fear of witches and periodical <laughs> slaughters. Uh, very early in American history, among the Iroquois, there was uh, an uprising with a tremendous bloodletting of people who were suspected of being witches. And Chaka went through the same thing. Yes, and uh, 
among the Paiute and Shoshones, uh, the belief was that uh, certain births indicated a possession, and therefore the child had to be killed. For example, uh, of course, our first three were, uh, four, excuse me, were Bookma girls. And this elderly woman, uh, an Indian, a very uh, likable person who would come over uh, regularly and have breakfast. She lived in a tent in the back. And she said, oh, too bad, too bad, when Martha, our youngest, was born. And she gave counsel, which was pick it up by the heels and bash its brains out on a rock. And then your next one will be a boy. And she said that's what her husband did. And the next one was a boy. Uh, The belief is that the evil spirits are behind certain births. And if you're denied a warrior to protect you, that means uh, you have to break the spell. Yeah, that's that's very true. The the birth can be influenced by a number of things. Whenever a man would get his tooth pulled, it was always a missionary that did the tooth pulling because we did just about all the medical work in our areas. Uh, They would take the tooth and put it in a banana plant and the reason was the reason I heard from the missionary was that it would ensure the birth of a boy but they may have been lying to the missionary but for whatever reason they took the tooth and put it in a banana plant <laughs> now, that's an interesting point <clears throat> they may have been lying to the missionary my uh, thinking of Margaret Mead of course and the outrageous lies that the Polynesian girls told right. her right yeah uh, well, yeah. you do have to watch the fantasizing, don't you? Yeah, you, that's that's a very good point. They were uh, obviously much less inclined to lie to a missionary if the missionary was their their spiritual father or had, like I said, brought light into their valley. They didn't feel any compunctions about lying to anthropologists. But the problem with talking to missionaries was they would fantasize, and I remember numerous cases of people talking about their conversions and their conversions experience, their conversion experiences always revolved around magical feats. One person told me he was in town and this truck started rolling towards him and he levitated himself above the truck and then came down again. And that was his conversion. And another one was attacked by three witch doctors, or maybe they may not have been witch doctors, they could have been just people out for him, but he was attacked by three people and they their weapon of killing is still the bow and arrow. And uh, these people all shot their arrows at him. He waved them aside with his hands forcing them away from the body. And so conversion experience has always gone like that. In fact, one time, one of the only, only qualified elders to ever appear in the tribe in 25 years, a godly man, just a godly man, pointed out a tree to me that bled human blood. He just couldn't, you just can't expect a person to divorce himself from his culture immediately. And that, that's that's a problem. Missionaries have to accept that. What about, what about evidence of... Uh Evil spirits or demonic possession. Did you see any of that or hear any stories about it? One time. One time, yeah. Uh, a missionary, they brought in a woman that was evidently uh, demon-possessed. Or, I'm sure that another explanation could be something something's wrong with her brain that gave her superhuman strength or whatever. They figured that she was demon-possessed. And uh, it took several men to hold her down. And they asked the missionary to come out and exercise the demon. Ooh. And the missionary said... It, relating the story, he said, I couldn't do anything because 
I was afraid of what would happen when nothing happened. He didn't have, he didn't have the faith. So um, what did he just say? What well, you know, in, in this particular case, yeah, there was a native man that was much less intelligent than the ways of the world, but greater in faith. And uh, I heard this story secondhand. I believe it's truth that the native man cast the demon out, and that was the only instance I heard of a demon possession while I was there. Hmm. I heard a first-hand story of a healing, a first-hand story of a healing. Yeah. And again, that was the only time I've ever heard of that in anywhere in the world in all my life. But it was a real, a real healing. It was a, again a native, a native man that was just full of the spirit. You mean a holding of hands? Or? No, no, it wasn't that at all. Uh, <clears throat> the son of a missionary. In fact, I knew that the, the both the missionary. I lived with the missionary, and I knew the son very well. Had a certain kind of blister that broke out on his, uh, in the inside of his throat, and it was gonna, it could have killed him. And then. The, the missionary was all scared wanted to fly him out to a hospital and then a native Christian said well why this is pray the prayer of faith over him and the missionary honestly said I just can't do it I don't have the faith and so the, <laughs> the native man prayed over him and cured him instantaneously instantaneously <laughs> mm-hmm. <clears throat> so there there are the two cases of uh, things supernatural that I've seen in my life you can believe them or not <laughs> It made a profound impression upon you, didn't it? A very, very profound. Yeah, I, uh, typically in Calvinistic circles, we believe that all the. I think it's an overreaction to Pentecostalism, but I think that uh, most of us believe that these things are no longer valid. But perhaps there's something into into the opinion that they were assigned to the unbeliever, and when you go to a nation where there aren't any believers, maybe it's possible still. I, there are too many I things like that happening all over the world and documented by doctors in some instances mission hospitals and the like well uh, let's get on to Bible translations (laughs) yeah that's a that was my Uh, most let me just throw out this that uh, everyone should know that beginning in January Tim will have a series of articles in the Calcedon Report on a regular basis which uh, deal with some things in depth that we have touched on. Okay. Yeah, that was my most most disappointing aspect of my trip. Uh, I had a high opinion of Wycliffe before and I'm, I'm not ashamed to say in front of anybody that I don't have that anymore. I, I don't know the percentage of real Christians in the Wycliffe Bible Translating uh, uh, organization, but I'm not. I'm afraid that it's not as high as uh, most people would like to believe. Very often, it's just an anthropologist out to translate a Bible and to make a name for themselves. In fact, they have an, an official policy that, for instance, if you were a Baptist and you went into a Lutheran area, you would not be allowed to preach against uh, consubstantiation because they don't want you to rock the boat. In other words, they bound you completely to whatever was going on in the tribe there. And what's the use of having a Bible translation if you don't preach? I can never understand that. They would uh, use dynamic equivalencies. Uh, An example I use in one of the articles uh, is translating Christ as the pig of God. And Wycliffe doesn't, I don't think they do that anymore, but they have in the past. Uh, saying that uh, since they've never seen a lamb but they know what a pig is, we'll just translate Christ as the pig of God. And we know how awful that is. It's Christ is meek and mild and uh, unoffending, and a pig is just the opposite. One of the things that Wycliffe still does, which 
which disturbs me to no end is things like uh, the local the local indigenous spirit, whatever it is, a troll or a genie or a poltergeist or a hobgoblin or whatever. They'll use that word to translate the word demon in the scriptures. And that just reinforces their mythology. This kind of approach uh, has taken over missions, both uh, evangelical and modernist. Mm -hmm. And it has various names, missiology, contextualization, Contextualization, and so on, all of which have as their purpose not raising people up to the level right. of Scripture, but lowering Scripture to the level of the people. Exactly, yeah. Well, that's the modern translation. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, that, uh, that may even be putting a better light on it than some of those people deserve, because sometimes I met one lady who was a higher critic there, and people that brought in their translations from the field would have to pass it by this lady to get approval for the funding. She's a dualist. Uh, you know, you can't help but believe that these people don't have anything more in mind than just to make the Bible acceptable to people right away. I think so, oftentimes they have something more uh, more discreditable in mind with with their methods of translation. Well, Wycliffe we started out as one of the greatest organizations mm-hmm. uh, Christians had produced, and it was so far ahead of university scholars in the field of linguistics that there was no comparison. And now they've been completely taken over or have surrendered to the opposition. They're still the best language learners, but we can't say too much about the quality of the translation. Well, they're following the pattern, pattern apparently, of modern academia. Mm -hmm. After all, look at the churches, the great churches that have translated the Bible downwards. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Here. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Another thing I put in the article that shocked me to no end was a, a Swiss group. There are a lot of Swiss missionaries in New Guinea. And a lot of them are, most of them are just high quality people. And what they did is to translate the Bible into different languages would, was to give a good news for modern man to a man that spoke halting English and sit him down and translate the Bible just right there from that. And they didn't—they didn't think anything was wrong with that. I don't think they were—they went out of the way to be evil. I think they had good intentions, but that's just not an acceptable way to acceptable way to translate the Word of God. Mm-hmm. The road to hell is—it's been said has been paved with good intentions, and you—you can—you see these people and they're so nice and they're trying to do such a good job, but we still have to talk against it because it's doing untold damage. Well, it used to be a man would spend his life translating into a particular language. Mm -hmm. Yes. And now it's a speed-up job by people with false ideas. Well, the the excuse, of course, is that they're all dying in their sin and they're heathen them. Before they die, we have to give them a Bible translation and but that's again, that's just pragmatism rather than uh, scriptural. Yeah, there's some free God translations out there, I'll tell you. How many uh, teams were involved here in Papua? In my group? In your group. Yeah, there were four families, two from America and two from Australia. Reform, whatever. 
Uh, and they, I like the way they, they did a real good job. There was only one of them that had the ability to translate a language because um, not everybody can learn a Melanesian language and that restricts it. And then of that group, how many are qualified to translate a Bible? Even very few. But the ones that couldn't translate a Bible were uh, had a very strong work and were responsible for many conversions because they would speak in the Creole language and all the young men spoke the Creole plus the native and so whenever the missionary would get up and preach, he always had a young man that would translate into the native language. And that's the way I did it. I, I walked around on Sundays. They had me go out to take Sunday services as much as I hated preparing for them. felt that I was uh, <clears throat> not competent in it. I would always take a young man around with me. And I noticed that whenever I would say a sentence, he talked for about an hour or so. <laughs> I think he was trying to compensate for my lack of ability in that area. <laughs> How come you were there, uh, I, I say, only six months? Right. Uh, well, they figured that th- right. uh, three months wouldn't have been long enough because you could get a, you, euphoric after the first three months and then go back and think that that's what you're cut out to do for the rest of your life. So you should definitely spend at least five or six months to see exactly how you fit in there. Any longer than that would be redundant. So it was really to, to, to see whether or not you wanted to do this. Exactly. That's, that's exactly On a full-time right. basis. Right, right. And you decided against it? Uh, actually, they decided against it. They decided against <laughs> it. Yeah, they said that I had a unusual abilities in language learning and would be a good translator, but I didn't have the desire to preach that a good missionary needed. So they said that if I were to come back, it would be better to couple me, uh, have me come back with a wife and then go out with another man and wife. Uh, and then I would be responsible for doing the translating and this other man would be responsible, responsible for the preaching and stuff like that. And... Uh, Nothing's ever materialized. <laughs> if anybody out there li- likes preaching is not interested in you Bible know. translating, give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you agree with their assessment? Yes, yes, I do. I I just don't have the desire that's necessary to go out and uh, spend all my time uh, preaching to those people. I I had a hard time, frankly, getting to enjoy them, and I I see it as a character deficiency in myself. But at the same time, you don't want to thrust yourself into a position you're not qualified for. I would like to translate a Bible sometime, though. There's still about 4,000 left, so there's still just time. <laughs> what year was it that you were there? To 84. 84. 84, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was after you finished at the university. Right, yeah. I, I waited. A, I worked for a, uh, nine months after I finished from Cal Poly. And I thought it would be nice, too, because I'd get a chance. I studied uh, tropical agriculture. And I had some experience in subtropical agriculture before, and I thought it would be a good chance to go out and, and teach some of these young Christians uh, things that would be beneficial. And I did start a test plot, and I grew things my way, and then I had them grow things their way. And mine did a lot better, and not because I'm an expert agriculturalist, simply because I followed basic things that any housewife gardener here in America would know how to do that they didn't. But uh, when my crops came in better than theirs, they didn't convert to my way of doing things for, for various reasons. I think a lot of it has to do with envy, and you two have already talked about this. Did they think that you were using magic? That was, that was the second thing, yeah. In fact, I went in to tell the lady I was staying with. I was all excited, and I said, oh, they all came and saw my crops did better. And she just laughed at me. I felt like I was about eight inches tall. They said, no, it was just because you had white skin. It was your magic that did it. And Sure enough, nobody would ever do it my way. It's kind of disappointing. <laughs> it used to be that uh, agricultural 
missions or a part of missionary operation to convert people to Christ and to a Christian uh, world and life, uh, faith and action. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of the great missionaries of the first half of this century was Sam Higginbottom in India, mm-hmm. an agricultural expert, a very dedicated Christian who uh, did a great deal in India and much of the good in agriculture there is still a part of Sam Higginbottom's right. heritage. But uh, it was uphill work right. because uh, you had to have a people who were ready to change their attitude yeah. about letting all the monkeys and wild animals, the rats and so on, live because right. they might be their <coughs> grandmother in a new incarnation. And... Uh, it was hard for the Christians to do the killing because of the hostility of neighbors. So it's a very, very difficult uh, job out there. Do the anthropologists try to uh, teach the people anything new? No, they don't want to disturb the native culture. Not even that. They they could care less about those people. They just want their names in in some stupid magazine that nobody's going to read anyway. They don't care about that. They have a hatred for humankind. Well, when I was among the Indians, there was that same attitude of laughter about uh, anthropologists. And the anthropologists would have uh, set ideas in mind. They'd come out with set questions, and uh, they wouldn't vary from them. And they would act as though you were withholding information if you did not answer their type of questioning. They were not interested in anything that you might have to say. And uh, to me, the interesting thing was, when I went there, I was intensely interested in uh, hearing what they had to say. So when they found that out... uh, They opened up. Oh, uh, in the winter nights, they'd come and stay until 12 and 1... Uh, to tell me about life in the old days, how they scalped, how they <laughs> hunted, exactly. and so on. Right. Because nobody, including their grandchildren, was interested yeah. in hearing their account. Did right. you hear accounts of that story? Oh, yeah. had the most interesting stories told to me. It was the same reason. They saw that I, I was trying to fit into their culture, trying to learn the language. And since I was with the missionaries that they loved so well they felt that they could open up to me without me mocking them and her, their, their stories revolve around food a lot of times because that's that's all they think about <laughs> they're so malnourished all the time uh, the stories would be like uh, I'll give you an example uh, a woman was walking out and her husband was next to her and the lightning came and struck her husband and took him up to a place of food every kind of food you can imagine and then the lightning came back down and her husband was there again. And that, That's the kind of story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, the stories I heard had to do with uh, warfare, right. yeah. survival, right. uh, hunting, yeah. uh, attaining uh, status as a warrior in the tribe, the qualifications. Yeah. Did they... Uh, have any festivals that you saw? In the Christians class? did. Yeah, the Christians every the year Christians have did, a yes. big get together. But the oh, natives. Well, yeah, they go into they go to dance. Uh, 
they go to dance competitions every once in a while and put pig fat on and, and uh, put what on? Oh, whatever. Pig fat to make pig it. Pig fat. Yeah, it makes it gleam. And then there's certain kind of roots that'll yeah. be blue here and red there and ashes here and stuff like that. And then they all, they're really, they're, it's quite nice actually. You see, they all paint themselves the same color. It's everybody from the tribe is you can tell what tribe they're from. They all dance around and do the thing. It's kind of interesting. <laughs> the, the stories that you've told so far, uh, one of the ones that uh, I assume we would all agree are kind of far out. <laughs> were those typical tall tales, or was there a super tall tale? Oh, some of our words. What is the wildest tall tale? Okay, I'll, I'll give you one. This is a Christian told me. Okay, a, a Christian told me, and again, we have to remember that. He, He's still a Christian, even though he hasn't divorced yes. himself completely from this culture. So a little kid told him this story, and he believed it was true. A little kid was by the river, and the huge boa constrictor came up and tried to eat him. So he threw a, a bunch of bananas at the boa constrictor. And we all know that snakes don't eat bananas. Anyway, so anyway, the snake ate the bananas, and it kept coming, ate the house, and it kept coming, ate the kid. The kid cut his way out of the knife, ran home, and told the folks, and everybody believed the story. Mm-hmm. That's well, <laughs> our time is about over. End on. Uh, as you can understand now, John, uh, Papua, in spite of its headhunters, is probably a safer place For than uh, Washington, D.C. Well, thank you, Tim, and thank you all for listening. God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christrules.com.